You are listening in to Mediapolis Now, the podcast channel of Mediapolis, a journal of cities and culture. This is our events podcast series in which we feature recordings of recent talks and symposia at the junction of cities, culture, and media. I'm your host, Scott Rogers. This episode is an edited version of the Predictive Cities Colloquium, held online on July 1st, 2021, though the speakers you hear were all in different parts of London at the time. The Colloquium was a roundtable discussing an online exhibition of the same name, Predictive Cities. This exhibition was sponsored by the Urban Intersections Working Group of Birkbeck's Institute for Social Research. And especially for Mediapolis listeners and readers, its run has been extended to the end of 2021, so you can take it in before, after, or even while you listen to the roundtable. You can see a link for the exhibition in the podcast episode's notes. The Predictive Cities exhibition is situated in the virtual space of a Mozilla Hub's VR chat room. It contains two types of objects. First, memes that spawn a selection of artworks by Manu Luksh, who's in the roundtable and who I'll introduce in a moment, which interrogate networked urbanism and citizen agency. Second, the exhibition includes a series of spherical photographs of Songdo, South Korea, which is internationally famous as a case study of greenfield smart cities. The series Songdo is custom made for VR, so if you have access to a VR headset, do use it. As I've said, for the roundtable, we were very fortunate to be joined by the creator of the exhibition, Manu Luksh. Manu is an artist and filmmaker who researches the effects of emerging technologies on daily life, social relations, urban space, and political structures. Her current work focuses on corporate governmental relationships and the social effects of predictive analytics in the algorithmic city. Her work is included in the Collection de Centre Pompidou, the BFI National Archive, and the core collection of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. In the roundtable, Manu is in conversation with a panel, all people based at Birkbeck University of London, including Professor Melissa Butcher, who's a social and cultural geographer that uses ethnographic, visual, and participatory methodologies to examine questions of identity and belonging within contexts of cultural change and contested urban space. Dr. Sarah Keenan, who works at the intersection of legal and political thought, geography, feminist theory, and post-colonial studies, and has a particular interest in the expansive and politically potent concept of property and the ways it might need to be rethought. And Dr. Joel McKim, whose interdisciplinary research draws together architectural and urban studies, digital media theory, memory studies, philosophy of aesthetics, and communication theory, and who is currently studying digital images, animation, and machine vision. The original recording has been edited for length and clarity, but also to remove some of my own interjections and housekeeping notes for the audience of the live event. I've also added in some sound clips from artworks mentioned in the discussion. And just a note on sound quality. It's not as good as it could be. We had a mishap on the day, which meant we've had to use the audio recorded through Microsoft Teams. Never a good idea but I think you'll agree that the content of the discussion more than makes up for this. Now, before we go to the panel, who have all had a chance to look around the exhibition, Manu, I want to get us started with a couple of broader questions. So the first one I wanted to ask is, if one looks at the body of your work, whether we're talking about in the Predictive Cities exhibition or more broadly, it's really striking how persistent you have been in researching and interrogating issues like surveillance, uh, biometrics, data, algorithms, 
and the ways in which they intersect with bodies and physical spaces, notably in the city. So has there been a particular impetus for this focus? Or if there's not one particular impulse, is there something that continues to bring you back to this research terrain? So I, back then I didn't like launch my my arts practicing. I'm going to work, you know, explore data. I'm going to explore the urban. So looking back, it's really interesting um, to see this consistency, even for myself and to ask myself, you know, where where does this come from? I'm definitely very passionate about like wild, open, shared public spaces. And I explained it with me growing up in Vienna, a capital in the 80s when it was notoriously underpopulated. There were lots of crumbling buildings. So those were my playgrounds. <laughs> I actually don't even remember ever having been at a playground, which, you know, I think is a great invention, but can also turn a little bit into a childhood ghetto if kids only get to go to the playground. Mm. So also a childhood without internet, without mobile phone and I wasn't really interested in television, which back then was um, monopolized by the national broadcaster. So, yeah. And then when I did take my first steps in the World Wide Web, as it was called back then, in the mid-90s, I really was excited about it as an extension to that public or open space <laughs> an extension where there were even fewer written rules, you know, not that I wouldn't have climbed walls in the built environment, but here there weren't even any walls. So um, pretty uh, soon after my first few steps, I became the um, director of the media lab of the city of Munich. And this was really um, where I think 24 hours a day I you know, I learned, I managed, I was actually um, somebody who really believed in the potential and all these promises that internet brought with it. Um, I was promoting that and getting artists to explore, you know, to include it in their conceptual thinking. So, but it was also at the Media Lab, we were host to coders, hackers who were also there more in the nighttime than, than daytime, where I pretty soon see that that space is also getting contested. So Bavaria had a quite a strong say in the European-wide policy about the regulation of the internet. And so the debate about how to police that space, isn't it that all the terrorists and pedophiles will now, you know, use this zone if we don't police it. And then, um, you know, not long after, um, I guess September 11 happened when surveillance surely uh, went into overdrive. And so, yeah, so my, my, my interest in the qualities of the net and, and how data could be used as a new form of expression. And so this all continued, but I was always interested in how, you know, in, in expressing in my artwork, how does it actually affect life on the ground, if you like, in real space. And um, also soon I realized I don't need, you know, my, my voice as an artist is, is not really needed in the field of promoting the potential, but more like starting to point out how this newly won autonomy that we celebrated not only became undermined, but um, yeah, it became a, a network, like a, like a web in, in which you could get caught. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it was really around 2001 that with a series of 
I called them spy schools. I would explore different aspects of surveillance on the net. And then ever since, whenever I felt, oh, I can tick off this topic, I come across, you know, a new angle or, or a, a new perspective or see it with new eyes come, you know, through a new discipline or is when I start to delve into uh, research, into a project and it is really to fight my own sense of alienation in my environment. And I think this hybrid environment, this is where we all live now. The way you frame the Predictive Cities exhibition is, of course, around the concept of, of prediction. And I think this is evocative. For me, it is evocative. And I was wondering if you could tell us about how in your work, you're seeking perhaps a, a, to show something about the preeminence of of data-driven and algorithmically anticipated or mediated anticipation, um, forecasting, modeling, futurity, and so on for contemporary cities. Why is prediction a theme for you? So, like I pointed out earlier, it was really through the root of exploring those new forms of surveillance that yeah, which actually led to an occupation with um, with uh, video surveillance as well, because this is where I, I saw these two forms converge. CCTV, which was just like shockingly ubiquitous when I moved to London, and and your real movements on the, um, in the streets, in the in the, in the public or, or commercial spaces, and. Um, so I'm again reaching back uh, to this experience with CCTV, even so uh, my um, occupation with prediction, you know, reaches across many different forms. And I'm in particular concerned about the way the new technologies and big data, if you like, is, an, is enabling forms of prediction. But back then, when, um, uh, if I say back then, I mean the, the early 2000, um explored uh, the possibilities of data protection in exploring the, this closed uh, circuit system that kept my image data, yeah, to get my image data out um, of this closed circuit. Um, and it was then that there were first trials also with biometrically enhanced CCTV. And so really what was it programmed to do? It um, identified behavior that was deemed suspicious, like hanging out or loitering or going against the stream. So behavior that was categorized as pre-crime behavior. So in itself, uh, you're not doing anything wrong, but um, it's categorized as suspicious because it's seen as very likely that you might commit something illegal. And so or if we look at this clip mapping CCTV, where I'm um, the kind of uh, unsuspecting conversation partner of, um, uh, of policemen, um, well, conversation partner, I'm um, being stopped and searched. I'm an artist. Right, and how does an artist come with CCTV? What is yeah, because, the I, because I work with um, moving image and film. Right, you can see why we're stopping you, while we're talking to you. So why did they stop and search me? So they informed me this because if I take photos of CCTV installations, then these photos might be used to attack this CCTV, this security infrastructure. So I'm not throwing stones at it, I'm just taking photos, but already I'm being treated um, as if I did something 
something wrong. And um, so what's their, you know, what's their threat model, if you like? And so this is where anticipation comes in. And the, these kind of models are then being taken and uh, cemented into code, if you like. So this is now how, where we find ourselves that uh, certain yeah, threat models or th these forms of categorization that are not really widely discussed or transparent, like we never really know how products like, let's say, the like Experian is this, is this big company that creates um, categories on, on the basis of big data and, and then sells that further to clients like the UK police or companies that want to improve their marketing. So you don't know that you're seen like as someone according to your postcode or your work pattern or, or these categories that they are creating. And um Generally, you know, when I when I looked at what huge impact data has in various ways in our daily lives, and still it is so difficult to mobilize people, like to rebel against it. I mean, data, this technology comes in, you know, it looks harmless or enticing or, or seductive. <laughs> so it is um, difficult to, or, or it's too abstract even, yeah, so, so given what kind of violence or exploitation also can be caused uh, through datafied processes. Um, it's quite astonishing that there's not, you know, more outcry against this kind of breach of human rights. And this is the challenge that I put myself over the decades, <laughs> I would say, you know, how, how to make these processes more graspable or how to turn them into an experience or like an open space and those who experience it are encouraged to think about this situation. So I, I don't like this kind of one-liner formats, <laughs> but really this is where I also feel that art is a powerful language because you can really create these spaces of thought, of calmness, and maybe I can even describe my own style um, or the appearance of my works is sometimes um, Know, seductive and <laughs> um, kind of promising, or like they have the form of a fairy tale, or but actually dealing with these questions that we are aware of, but they're slightly invisible or hard, hard to grasp or ephemeral. Mm. I'd like to turn to our panel now, and we're hoping here for a pretty free flowing conversation. And so, our roundtable panelists will be coming in here and engaging Manu with questions and comments. And Melissa, would you like to get us started? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Scott. And thanks, Manu. It's a really captivating piece of work. And I guess for me, what really struck me is I, I spent time sort of moving around and swimming, felt like I was swimming through the work, was this juxtaposition between your presentation of Song Du as a, a smooth bubble, these smooth spheres, versus what we know as the jagged realities of inequality that seeps through, particularly in the audio and the interstitial visuals that you're presenting in the work. And you mentioned in your response to Scott there the, the encounter you had with the police officer. And I thought that was really interesting because what comes through in that audio is this repetition of these words like security, terror, concern. And for me, that just reflects the, the kind of anxieties that we're seeing in contemporary life around these questions of predictability or more importantly, unpredictability. So much of the discourse surrounding smart cities is about controlling unpredictability corralling wayward data, wrangling infrastructure, 
wrangling people, putting people in their proper place, putting infrastructure in its proper place so that the neoliberal city works as efficiently and as smoothly as possible, including removing that which is dysfunctional, whether it's infrastructure or people. Um, this is very reminiscent of the work I'm doing at the moment in India on the Smart Cities mission. Um, so India's um, familiar with the, the Smart Cities mission. A hundred cities have been nominated to retrofit um, digital infrastructure to make them smart, in inverted commas. And that discourse from the global scale down to the local scale is just redolent with this language, the same language that you heard that police officer saying, um, security, order, control. And the first piece of infrastructure that has to be embedded in the Indian smart cities is what they term the Integrated Command and Control Centre, ICCC. And the function of the Integrated Command and Control Centre is really to facilitate the convergence of the digital into the economic, into the social fabric and economic fabric of these cities. Um, not just the material infrastructure, but into the way that human beings are being moved around the city. So we have this convergence of human and digital, which is about, again, controlling unpredictability in these cities. And what I found fascinating was when I started thinking about it, looking through the work, reflecting on uh, the body of uh, work in, in urban studies, which is highlighting that this idea of predictability is very much embedded in our understanding of the stranger um, and how we manage our encounters with the stranger and the strange, how we manage cultural difference in cities that brings together the, com the complexity of cities, you know, race, ethnicity, gender, age, sexuality, uh, ability. This dysfunction, put it in inverted commas, what's seen as dysfunction, difference is being made to be seen as dysfunctional and that has to be made predictable through the use of technologies, through the use of the digital. We know from all the research in social psychology and social geography that human beings, we like predictability. Um, there's no getting around that, actually. We do, you know, even when we're critical of things like you are in your work, Manu, I think there's, there's that part of us as being human that we like predictability. We need to know what's going to happen in the spaces around us. It, it saves precious cognitive resources. If we can predict how others around us are going to behave to different degrees. And this obviously coalesces around a cultural hegemony where the majority feel comfortable. And that reinforces the rules of predictability within that cultural space. And so I think we're seeing now, particularly in these cities like Songdu or even here in London, which has the layers of surveillance that you narrate in your, in your encounter with the police officer and in your work, we see layered on top of this affective response to the city that demarcates where we feel comfortable and not in the city, this, the use of technology in order to reinforce the rules of predictability, technologies of surveillance, for example. Um, and I guess my first question for the or thought for the panel, maybe to, to start off the discussion, is thinking about then how do we resist? And you, you finished in response to, to Scott Manu thinking about this as well, I think. The, where are then the spaces of resistance? Because even in the work, the spheres, the spheres of Songdu are still the dominant spheres. You know, they're kind of like crossing over the other visuals um, and some, in some places blanking them out. You've got to sort of dig around, swim around a bit to, to find those interstitial spaces, to find where the oppositional voices are coming from. Where is the citizen agency? You know, the, how do we bring the critical artwork into the street so that, um, so that we can actually resist in different ways uh, the kind of um, surveillance society tied into surveillance capitalism and the surveillance uh, and the neoliberal urbanism that we're seeing that all coalesces in these ideas of smart cities that are, that are dominating the way that we live. So how do we create spaces, I guess, that are unpredictable, where people can feel comfortable with unpredictability that enables us then to interrogate more the structures of power that are inherent in the creation of predictability? 
Manu, do you want to come back on that? How do we get comfortable with unpredictability? <laughs> um, so yesterday I joined a panel on data and activism and much of the discussion was around this question, how can we actually practice resistance? Where is there any space left? And I think we always really returned to point um, that we need to find where we as a as an individual where you can actually do something like don't just wait but there's always a starting point and that will lead you to the next step and to the next step and you will connect to you know and then eventually there has to be an of course a political element to it as well but you know if we if we look maybe at a different domain like recycling <laughs> um so in so many places uh even on an institutional level there's just no commitment to avoid i don't know plastic bottles or these these kind of uh nespresso coffee kind of containers so and they fill bags and bags and it's not even recycled or so so there's always a starting point that you can find like not you know change your search engine to one that has that is committed to privacy or change your messaging up to, to one that has a bigger commitment to privacy or that is um, open source or independently programmed. Or, but then for sure, we'll have to find a voice on an institutional level in order to take it on a political level. But yeah, since I am operating as an individual and not particularly attached to any organization over longer periods of time, I feel that, yeah, with the language of art, you know, that really allows me to speak to so many different people, like there's no prerequisite, like no no knowledge required. You know, I like to use poetic forms or storytelling. So uh, more recently, I really tried to find a language that is also more suitable to reach out to younger people. And I was really happy when the short film Algorithm was actually picked up uh, by the German curriculum. Le peuple même, je suis la candidate providentielle. Y'a pas meilleur que moi pour le poste présidentiel. Je suis jeune et ambitieuse, j'ai des idées nouvelles. J'imposerai une vraie conscience citoyenne. Mais le chemin du palais, je sais, est parsemé d'embûches. Et la conquête du pouvoir rime souvent avec triche. On m'a dit que dans ce domaine, je ne pourrais pas trouver mieux que vous pour réaliser le plus cher de mes voeux. <rire> So in secondary schools, um, that film is available as a teaching resource. And yeah, so I think that visual art, but also music, you know, these kind of formats, they travel well, they encourage to get engaged in, in these issues. Um, so there's definitely a reason why so many uh, hip hop artists, like rappers, uh, get into trouble around the world and get imprisoned for the contents of their performances. I definitely found that algorithm uh, film one of the most, it's a joy to watch, really. I really, really loved it. Sarah or Joel, would one of you like to come in? Sarah? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to speak. I'm similarly interested in the space of resistance and how that can be created in light of the kinds of predictive cities that we're increasingly living in and that Manu's work sort of exposes for us. 
I really enjoyed actually in the exhibition manner that I think it was a nice balance of, uh, on the one hand, sort of exposing the harsh realities of the predictive cities that are coming. The third quarterly report was um, a very strong piece for me in thinking about how the kinds of governance structures that uh, relate to all of us are created and how obstructed they are from the world that they create. But then also offering alternative visions like the Blue Sky Blueprints film that, you know, the children's uh, vision of, of what a city could be. Um, struck me in, in so many ways, including, you know, I mean, in Marxist terms, it's all use value, right? There's no exchange value. <laughs> they're, they're not thinking, they're creating a, a, a city um, that, that's usable um, and not one that's geared towards the extraction of, of profits. But yeah, uh, like most academics, I guess, I viewed this exhibition through the lens of my own research. And recently, I've been looking at the digitization of the formerly paper-based legal processes that are used to transfer title to land and to create burdens like mortgage charges um, against land. And because land, as so many people have written about, it's such an unnatural commodity, those legal processes used to involve a great deal of ritual, uh, which were condensed into paper-based legal protocols and particular forms of paper and practices around paper and ha how those pieces of paper are to be handled. And with the digitization of these formerly paper-based rituals has come a, a changing of the substance of those rituals in ways that develop new modes of control, um, new subjectivities and new legal objects and new formulations of property and governance. Um, and specifically related to the idea of predictive cities, I've argued that the new infrastructures being built for platform-based conveyancing of land title give mortgage lenders an unprecedented form of preemptive digital control over housing and the people who live in those houses. And that measure of control, of predictive control or preemptive control given to banks, essentially, makes those houses not just financial collateral, but themselves a form of material disciplinary power over the human subjects who ostensibly own them. So the owners actually become sort of ruled by the houses, which they're indebted to or their sort of um, manifestations of their debt in a way that is totally contradictory to enlightenment theories of property, which, you know, are based on the idea of a, a rights-bearing subject who controls a docile object. And if I'm right about that, that means that we have to throw those enlightenment theories away because even on their own terms, they're not explanatory of anymore. But that could also be exciting because it gives us an opportunity to rethink property and personhood and governance in different ways. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have thought about a number of the pieces and I don't want to speak for too long, but maybe I'll just uh, in regards 
to the spherical photographs of, that Melissa commented on as well of Songdo in South Korea. Yeah, I love that they took us to this environment, which is the kind of environment that law students often question me about when I sort of start off teaching land law by saying that what makes land different is that it's a commodity that isn't produced. Humans can't make land. Um, and so the question I generally get is, oh, what about reclaimed land? Humans have, have made this land. And here's Songdo, you know, a, a city built on, on reclaimed land. And I think that the terminology of reclaiming is quite interesting in terms of who's entitled to it in the first place. But yeah, the land reclaimed from the Yellow Sea by hydraulically filling these former mud flaps with around 23 million cubic meters of sand and creating thousands of square meters for apartments, commercial and retail space in what was the largest private real estate development in history. For me, those spherical Songdo images don't so much raise the question of can humans make land, but are evocative in asking viewers to think to themselves what kind of dry and aquatic environment humans are creating for ourselves in this moment of unprecedented climate catastrophe and what illusions about the future we're creating by doing so. Um, and I think then lots of the pieces sort of explore that further in more specific ways. But I might stop there and we can maybe get into more of the individual pieces in conversation. Interesting that you bring up the fact that the land on which Songdo was built had been reclaimed. I had two half days that I could spend at Songdo and I was very keen to meet an inhabitant to get to speak to someone who, who lives there. And yeah, there were a couple of short encounters, but in general, so during my first visit, The city was completely empty. I, I didn't meet anyone. There were a few cars driving around, but I didn't see any person other than in the restaurant and in the tower that visitors can go up to enjoy the view. <laughs> but those who I managed to speak to, they had no idea that Songdo was of international fame because of its status as a pioneering or, or early project in this smart city field. But their understanding of the history of the place and the pride that they took was to explain to me it's built on land that we have reclaimed from the Yellow um, Sea. So funny enough, it was on my return flight, my flight home, that I sat next a young lady who, it turned out, lived in Songdo, but we had to converse through auto-translates in written. <laughs> I could ask her a few questions and um, she said, uh, yeah, she lives there because her parents live there and it's not very populated because um, even so people like the big park and the generous layout of the city, it's just too expensive for most people. And so that's why it never took off. So that was her narrative. And this was also a narrative that I'm quite interested in. I remember a speaker at the Smart City World Expo, um, a representative of a, uh, one of big tech companies who have a big stake in this smart uh, city technology sector. And him saying, well, you know, in terms of budgets, it's a completely different situation because you, you speak to a developer or a mayor and they say, well, if your smart infrastructure allows us to charge 
let's say, $5 per square feet more, then we will have recuperated the expenses for all this technology 10 times. So go for it. You know, we advertise it as smart <laughs> neighborhood. And so the rise of costs goes, of course, always at the expense of a particular type of diversity in who will move there. Joel, did you want to come in at this point? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I wanted to begin with, I really also liked your contribution to the, the great volume Uncertain Archives and your contribution on prediction in that, which you open with this great quote, prediction is very difficult, especially if it's about the future. And it's a great quote, but it's also great because, as you note, it's attributed to many different people. No one really knows whether anyone ever said this or who did. So was it Niels Bohr? Was it Robert Storm Peterson? I mean, we don't really, we don't really know. And so there's something, it speaks to, I think, two things. One is the idea that prediction is actually difficult. So as much as we are kind of worried about these kind of technologies of prediction, we also have to recognize that they often fail, right? It's, they're not, often are not successful. But then also this kind of uncertainty around the provenance of the quote itself sort of just sort of reinforces this difficulty of certainty around, around prediction. I guess my question is really about, I thought that a lot of the projects that you're investigating sit at this kind of threshold of adoption and failure. And it seems to me that you're exploring a terrain in which, you know, we don't necessarily know whether these technologies will be successful or not. So they're kind of on this threshold of technological hype and a kind of warning of the possibility of their of their success. And one of those technologies that I've been kind of looking at recently is around things like computer vision. And I think we're really at this precipice with that technology where the way in which that technology is developing is at an in kind of incredible pace in many ways the sort of breakthroughs around deep learning and machine learning and so on where we have computer vision systems that can successfully predict images from the data set image net at a 98 percent success rate and all of these kind of statistics of raising bars of success which feed into systems like autonomous vehicles which you know we're repeatedly told are just around the corner right the successful rollout of autonomous vehicles which were they to be successful would be incredibly transformative socially and economically in potentially extremely disastrous ways, actually. So, you know, in, in the United States, for example, driving vehicles is the number one occupation of, of adult males, whether that's long haul trucking or cab driving or bus driving or, you know, so on. So the, the kind of promise of that technology could be incredibly socially disruptive. But on the other hand, we hit these walls, right? Where something like autonomous vehicles and the computer vision relies on seem to sort of perpetually disappoint us. You know, they don't, we never quite reach that. And it seems to me other technologies that you're working with. So CCTV, the sort of classic example of images being captured all over the city, but is anybody actually looking at them? Is it actually a su successful surveillance system or is it a kind of quote unquote disappointment? VR technology in some ways, I think operates in that sense where we're, you know, is this going to revolutionize image culture as we know it and, and the ways in which we interact with media or will it be another technological hype like the first wave of VR technologies? So I guess that's sort of my question is that how do you feel as an artist working with uh, technologies that I think often, and uh, actually Songdo actually is another one of these examples. Is it the kind of city of the future or is it this economic disappointment? So 
I guess the question is, what is it like as an artist working both with technologies, but then making works about technologies that seem to sort of sit on this threshold between social transformation and then possibly failure or disappointment? And how do we operate both as artists, but then also as kind of scholars of these technologies to be careful about not in some ways kind of feeding the hype when we in fact want to encourage a kind of critique? Yes, I guess I can follow on from Joel because I was interested in how we define success and who's defining success. And again, all the power relations that are inherent in how we define success. Um, it seems that, you know, we know the critique, you know, that there are techies that are designing apps and algorithms and their measures of success are devoid of humanity or human use of, of these technologies in many ways. And I just thought of a lovely story that I'd heard um, from one of the testers of autonomous vehicles here in London, because they're having all sorts of problems here in London. We don't have a grid system as you have in the state. So it's taking much longer to figure out how autonomous vehicles can work. And the area, they realized that their data was uh, was failing because the area where they were testing the autonomous vehicles, the kids, the local kids had worked out when they saw these driverless vehicles <laughs> that they could mess with the system by suddenly jumping out in front of the car and causing all sorts of havoc with the, you know, basically it looked like they weren't working and they were creating almost accident. You know, the alarms were going off, all the rest of it, that these systems weren't going to work. I just thought it's a lovely point where humanity intervenes, this whole idea of anthropologists, idea of weapons of the weak, and the kids completely unconscious. They just thought it was a bit of fun, I'm sure. Could they mess up this um, transnational company's very expensive autonomous vehicle testing program by just jumping out in front of the cars as often as possible? But I guess that goes back to the question about, you know, we can rely on humanity's ingenuity to, to kind of, intervene in these systems in very humorous, ludic ways. You know, we can think about the ideas of ludic geographies as well, um, unconscious ways of, of challenging uh, the markers of success. And I guess that also then just a point that Sarah had mentioned about subjectivity, and I wonder if that's a point we can maybe explore a bit more because this is, I think, really important in terms of how citizens of a city are thinking about themselves. Again, in the Indian context where we're working, one of the reasons that uh, planners are, are giving for the lack of success of their smart city interventions is because people aren't smart citizens and they're very explicit. Some of the leading CEOs of the special project vehicles in, that are involved in the smart cities mission and the government um, and municipal authorities in this sort of rhetoric that it's because people aren't educated into how to use the technologies. They're not smart citizens. Um, and there is this vision, this urban imaginary of the smart city only works if it's full of smart citizens that know how to use the technology and that are embedded in that technology as well. So, and we are seeing the removal of people, um, uh, you know, informal hawkers, for example, in India that aren't regarded as smart, you know, so it's another reason to, to move people if they're blocking the success of these, these projects. So I wonder if that idea of subjectivity is something to explore a little more as well. So there's a lot of points to pick up there, Manu. Maybe going back to the beginning, I think you could go back to what Joel was uh, talking about around the sort of this ambiguous relationship between hype and possible disappointment on the one hand, and then perhaps these technologies being a warning of something transformative, possibly catastrophically transformative, and then maybe turning to some of the things Melissa was saying around how do we define success? What is the role of subjectivity? Yeah, Joel, absolutely. I'm so glad you're bringing this up, um, this question. Uh, do you, at times, artists who create these, you know, colorful, entertaining um, things with technologies just feed the hype? And um, I mean, I would think that within the range of works that are in the predictive city 
exhibition, there might be the, the one or other more playful piece of work, but um, usually very interested in working with systems that are non-proprietary, that, you know, that use open source solutions or to even create my own code as a team um, that I then offer for free, but also really to work in this DIY spirit. <laughs> I would say often our, our practice is like a celebration of old technologies. If I say our, it's also because for many years I worked as part of maybe call it collective ambienttv.net. So um, I um, managed to secure quite a large um, space in Hackney that was located on the top floor of a building block. And around the time when broadband uh, was launched, it was initially very expensive and uh, not only unaffordable to artists or many households or smaller businesses, but also in the contract, it would say that you're not allowed to share your bandwidth for no other reason and that, yeah, it would stop this other person, whoever you're sharing it with, from buying their own connection. So what we did was we collected technology that companies would filter out as obsolete old PCs. And then um, we reconfigured them in our space into routers. And um, other friends were running uh, antenna making workshops also in that space, um, in the ambient space. So we could set up our own wireless community broadband network. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really just about avoiding costs and, and sharing, but also this whole experience of really knowing the technology and really knowing that new space that you're opening up and also being in charge, like having the responsibility to make sure it continues to run, to maintain it, to upgrade it, to introduce new participants. So yeah, that was really a time and an activity that created a community sense and that is sort of the bridge, <laughs> the word community sense to what Melissa was describing. You know, who are these Indian smart cities built for? I had the chance to visit the one at the margin of Ahmedabad, but I have to admit I forgot its name. So it was one of the showcase cities because Prime Minister no? um, Narendra Modi is from Ahmedabad. And, um, and so really, of course, what you notice is <laughs> that it doesn't really capture the way of life. I mean, even middle-class Indians, if you like, take the service of those who offer wares or their services on the streets, like get the shirts ironed by the passing, I don't know what the job description is. <laughs> also, complete lack of, of street life. And like Melissa, like you're saying, get even evacuated if you don't have an address in an Indian smart city. So it's... Yeah, it's a prestige project for those who aspire to, yeah, let's just put it simple, the American way of life, American toilets, American <laughs> isolation from your neighbor, from your neighborhood. Um, and that comes at a certain price. Just following on this conversation about subjectivity and actually what you were saying, Manu, there about the American way of life. I think that the reality of the level of power and control that now rests with big tech and data companies, it does raise questions around sovereignty. Uh, and I guess, I mean, you know, as, as a lawyer, I, 
I think about this and that there's so many problems with the model of liberal democracy that we have, but it's more accountable than than what is happening with big data. And if we're asking the question of like, what does it mean to be a smart citizen? I guess I'm also interested in this question of like, who are we loyal to? Like, who is the sovereign to which we are responsible to as part of a political community? What are the bounds of that political community? What are the terms of that political community? Who sets those terms and, and how are they produced? And Manu, yeah, when you said about, you know, the American way of life and yeah, I, I can see how, how that is uh, an element of what is changing about people's subjectivities in particular areas outside of America. It makes me think of, there's this book um, by Inderpal Grewal about transnational America. It's, it's an old book, but it just made this argument that the nation state is not what we think it is, um, and particularly when we're talking about an entity like America, it actually expands way beyond its physical bounds. And of course, all of the work on borders, external, internal borders, the, I guess, the sort of ontological categories through which we conduct political and legal analysis are not coherent anymore. And that's terrifying, but I hope and I wonder that maybe if we're sort of released from these modes, can we, you know, is that where we can find resistance? Can we sort of organize into something new? Yeah, just to maybe continue on the topic of resistance, I wondered if at some point, I can't remember where it was, I'm sorry, but you, you mentioned the term Manu uh, in one of the descriptions of the works of a detournement uh, and a kind of data detournement. I was interested in the use of these very contemporary image producing technologies in relation to, you know, kind of history of detournement, which is very associated with cinema and television and the kind of shifting the images of consumer capitalism towards a different end, you know, kind of that kind of resistance of the situationist, you know, the classic detournement. And I, I just wonder if these data oriented image systems, so you using LIDAR systems and point clouds and other forms of kind of data extraction and computer vision and so on, do they allow themselves to be that process of detournement in the same way? Or is the kind of infrastructure they're based on and proprietary softwares and the kind of ways in which they're embedded in this new form of data oriented capitalism, whether it really makes it difficult for them to be shifted to projects of resistance. Um, so I'm kind of curious whether we've, we've moved into a new media age in which detournement is quite actually really quite difficult based on the image producing technologies that we have available. Uh, so maybe there's a chance to also see a little bit about how these point clouds um, and point deleted imagery were made because again I didn't have a lighter so for the video that was also turned into a 3D object um, we just simply used connect attachment which is a device that um, as extension to your PC allows you to capture movement for gaming really but we used it here for form of video, shouldn't say video production, um, it was a data capture in, uh, that I was interested in in order to find a metaphor to speak about our datafied self and the datafied city. And also those neighborhoods that I extracted from, well, first I had to create a, a photogrammetry. So again, the depth information is simply calculated 
from overlapping images, hundreds from overlapping images. Um, <laughs> I use the cheapest drone that you, that you can probably get <laughs> in order to scan a few streets and a few blocks. But for example, in the case of point deleted, uh, these yeah, data captures of, of people, it was my son just using a snapshot camera, you know, going around them, <laughs> like my teenage son helping out. So I'm I'm really interested in these kind of erratic captures. Like I, I didn't really want to achieve a depiction of a person, you know, as a most complete representation as, as you would do it in a, in a big studio with 300 cams that take a picture of you at the same time. It was absolutely low tech and be replicated by your grandmother. <laughs> so it's, it's a kind of approach um, <laughs> um, that we took and also Having said that, working in Senegal really always kept you down to earth, as in, I guess I spent more time negotiating with a truck driver not to put a ton of sand just in front of our fresh graffiti that we wanted to film. You know, I didn't really have the capacity to run expensive technology that you need to keep dust free. That's an issue if you work in, in certain environments. Challenge that uh, keeps to amuse me as well. <laughs> Not just Senegal, I've had a similar experience in yeah, other countries. Like I worked in Thailand for a while and keeping your equipment dust free or to work under the torrents of um, monsoon rains. <laughs> I think this is something we forget about when we look at our usual kit, be the camera, be the laptop here in Europe or in the States, the climatic conditions are actually not everywhere such that these devices are easy to use and are long-lived. <laughs> I'm now drifting off a little bit, but um, again, in, in a way, this does also take me to thinking about these ideas of success, you know, what is a successful piece of technology, but also what is a necessary piece of technology. And I can't help myself but thinking that the, the motivation behind this rush of innovation as we experience it now, and I say innovation in quotes, is just really too motivated through the dynamics of the market. So if we were really to sit down and to think, which kind of problems on this planet would we like to solve? And we have the technology, we have so much potential at our fingertips. I mean, would we really invest in the passenger flights to Mars or, <laughs> or self-driving cars. Like for me, also one of the reasons why so far I have defied the temptation to work with the arts markets, because I feel that I can't really formulate my projects in, in the way that I want to, if I then see it ending up in a context that I'm actually trying to criticize or to put forward as in being questioned, you know, where I feel, okay, we have to easily agreed on a certain modus operandus and all my projects emerge outside of the arts market and I also never fed into it. I think it's really relevant, Manu, the point that you raise, necessary versus successful. The definitions of what is a successful smart city can be very different to what is actually needed. And you can see this again in examples from the project I'm working on in India. The priorities are going towards building a bike track when there's not proper sanitation and or proper water flow, into, particularly into poorer areas in the city. So this debate about what is needed, what is necessary, has been completely overridden by this idea of uh, we must have a smart city because it's going to fix all of our problems. 
and that then ties into there's power relations at the local level there, but that's obviously tying into the transnational power relations that Sarah was alluding to as well. You know, we have this urban imaginary, this imagination of what a modern city should look like. That gets tied into ideas of sovereignty, like what a national, you know, a modern nation has these modern cities that look in a particular way. This image is being circulated globally. We know that. I mean, you mentioned the Smart Cities Expo, Manu, and there's a myriad of think tanks and Bloomsburg and McKinsey and Deloitte and um, PwC, you know, all of these big firms, these transnational firms are all involved, for example, in the Smart Cities mission at various levels in various ways, reproducing the same images and you'll see these same CGIs being produced, whether it's for the new, is it Mashoira, the new estate in Doha that Jillian Rose has been working on with her team, Watson's work in Africa, different African countries, Kigali, for example. And you see these efforts at localization. So this is the kind of, I mean, to me, and Sarah, you might have some comments on this. You know, it is about expansion of the market. It's about, how I would argue anyway, it's this expansion of the real estate market into, into the global south, into these cities. It's classic kind of Marxist theory, if you want to put it in those terms. What I find interesting, though, two points that came from what you were saying, Manu, the in terms of what choices we're making about what's necessary, if you think about the urgency of climate change, how environment is being used to sell these cities as well by transnational players. You know, you have a smart city, it will be environmentally sustainable, it will be environmentally friendly, you're contributing towards helping save the planet, but also the role of artists and arts market in this as well. And so you're seeing that this idea of you must have a star architect if you can get one, or a, an artist as well, contributing to the landscaping, contributing to installing art into these cities as well. That's also part of this urban imaginary of these cities as successful, as global. I'm not sure if it's Americanization. I mean, obviously, that it's more about capitalism, I'd say, these days as well, because of this tinge of localization, this nod to localization, but it's this reproduction of a, what a middle-class life, again, subjectivity comes into this, what a middle-class life person or middle-class life should have, what urban amenities they should have. Bike track, very important. Sanitation in poorer areas, not so important. They can be made invisible. And it's interesting in Ahmedabad, the, the case that you mentioned, Manu, how they've used the city to build site blocks so that you don't see. Um, you've got the nice urban redevelopment, but then you've got the site blocks so you don't see the slum areas that are behind the new redevelopments that they're seeing in, in cities like Ahmedabad as well. Yeah, Melissa, I absolutely think, you know, that we can apply a sort of Marxist analysis and we can see here the expansion of a particular form of capital into the global south and, a you know, accumulation by dispossession in that mode. But I also think that it's more complicated than that, or that it's not just that, and that there are structures of inequality, material, environmental, social inequality within those communities in the global south, and then also in communities in the global north, right? And that the sort of realignments that are happening actually come can't just be explained by a sort of Marxist through Harvey reading. Not that I can explain them either, um, but I think the particular formation of, yeah, capitalism, but more than that as well, of power, of this form of power requires frameworks that I don't have yet, I think, to understand. And I am really stuck on this question of what it means for subjectivity and who we're loyal to. And, you know, there was this great um, article written ages ago by some German media theorists, Cornelia Wissmann and Markus Kruski, called Computer Juridism. I really rec recommend it's like a page turner. And it makes this argument that law and the computer are the two great symbolic machines of Earth, law and the computer. They both operate in binary mode 
and they're both completely text-based. And as digitization has become a part of everyday life, law has been reduced to another computer user. And the sovereign is the chip, the, the, the entity that determines uh, privileges, access, that makes decisions, that makes rules is the chip. And the means through which the chip is programmed are so much faster and more efficient than the means through which we make law, certainly in a democracy. So that doesn't answer your question, but I come back to that constantly when all the various frames that I turn to to try and explain what's happening can't fully explain what's happening. So who wants to come back on that first? Fascinating. <laughs> Can I jump in just before Joel, just to follow up really quickly, just to say, yeah, in no way deifying Marx, you know, interesting, but I'm much more interested in the post-colonial theorists who I think could uh, feed into your explanation. So people like, you know, Ananya Roy, Ayona Dutta, Sanjay Shrivastava, Jonathan Anjaria, you know, if you're really interested in that, you know, that yeah, questioning both Marx and the power relations about what's happening with urban development in the global south, head head in that direction, I would nudge people. <laughs> Definitely, yes, yeah. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very interested in these kind of circuits of speculative urbanism that we've all been talking about, but then also the way that Melissa highlighted the role of images within that circuit and the ways in which, you know, particularly these kind of rendered CGI images that are so ubiquitous now kind of make these projections inevitable or seem inevitable. These developments will happen before they've even begun and there's no way to stop them. And actually, Manu has a great line in, in that predictive text where she writes, the easiest way to predict the future is to produce it. And there's a way in which, you know, these forces almost by sheer will are kind of bringing about this predicted future based on these technologies, based on these forms of urbanization, based on these kind of transnational cooperations and so on. And it's it's not about predicting the future. It's about making that future happen by sheer force. And part of that force is image based and part of it is law based and part of it is land based. And I think um, in some ways, the, the kind of futurism that this sort of romantic futurism of even things like space exploration and colonizing Mars and autonomous vehicles sometimes hides that force of will that's going on at the moment, reshaping the planet. Right. Yeah, Joel, uh, that's the quote I wanted to throw back earlier when you <laughs> brought up the, the one about the prediction of the future being difficult. Uh, um, I was thinking of this other one. <laughs> you can afford um, struggling predicting the future because it's about really thinking it first. What What is it you want to enforce? And this is also where such collaborative or participatory projects come in for me and take this important space of, you know, like access invitations to exercises to remind yourself what is it you actually wish for. So kayak libre, the kayak taxi, which I also described as a detournement because you really take a passenger from a really familiar environment, a street corner they know very well, and just by taking them onto a lower point, onto the water, where the acoustic sphere is completely different and can't take electronics on board of this kayak. And, you know, you just um, really experience the same urban environment in a completely different way. Oh, I'm, I'm enjoying here now this, uh, this trip here in that canal. So because it's very relaxing, comparing to other transports here in London. So just to say that I like 
peaceful. Yeah, the quiet. peaceful way to move. Because nowadays we are so stressed, yeah? I think we should look for another way of to move. How you said an alternative. That's uh, an interesting experience today. And here's the tube. And there's the tube, yeah. (laughs) Crossing the river. The interesting bit there was, I explained to my passengers, the fair is a conversation about future of mobility. And what I didn't ask was, what do you think the future of mobility will hold? Because every single person would have said, um, you know, tailored transportation or kind of an acceleration and um, something along those lines, uh, flying to New York in half an hour. (laughs) Um, But instead, we would spend some time, the passenger would also have to paddle along and take in the environment and the shout outs from passerby. And instead, this person would start to enjoy the slowness and the inefficiency, if you like, <laughs> of the kayak taxi. Sometimes it would take two hours to get um, just a few miles further down. But um, in the conversation, it became clear that a vision for a form of mobility that allows for slowness, that you know, brings in qualities like making the encounter an event that would leave you with a nice aftertaste or feeling or thing to think about or even wishes for more shared forms of transport or manually powered forms of transport like hoverboards or I don't know, just completely... (laughs) (laughs) blue sky thinking (laughs) yeah like no one really failed to fall in love again with a particular form of inefficiency and and slowness that was clearly something that came out of the kayak libre project and so why is it emerging technologies just search to erase (laughs) these spaces Because I think those are the moments where we get in touch with ourselves in these moments of the unplanned happening or the unplanned, unexpected, surprising encounter or the encounter with the unknown or, you know, these things that take a bit of time away from our schedule and what it actually was we wanted to do. But that's the food of who you become. I did actually want to come back to one thing you said at the beginning. I'm not sure if I understood it or interpreted it in the way you meant it, Manu, but one of the things you'd said at the beginning when we were talking is about talking about some of the topics like this, the way I asked the first question, in a kind of almost scholastic kind of way, talking about you know prediction and these, these types of um, topics. And this is probably a really banal question to ask an artist like you, but I was wondering if you think uh, one of the roles of the artist in debates about the algorithmic city or about data-driven urbanism is to raise ways of seeing these topics that are more imaginative or folkloric or create an environment rather than just a kind of uh, an analysis or to create encounter, feeling, that sort of thing. So, I mean, the, the film algorithm, you know, convening hip-hop artists to address an issue like electioneering in a really a way that was quite unexpected, I thought. Like I just, I found it really engaging. 
So I guess my question is just, uh, would this describe for you the way artists, what artists can really add to these sorts of debates? Because I often feel that the kind of academic discourse on these debates can be sort of stale at times, I suppose, uh, in the way it attacks the questions and, and a repetitive maybe. So to start with, I think there is no one role of art. <laughs> That's the beautiful freedom that we enjoy that can also turn into a paralyzing experience at times because can head off into any direction. Personally, I don't feel very drawn to decorative or merely entertaining art forms. <laughs> so I hope very much that my work frames issues, issues that I personally struggle with. I really need to emphasize, you know, this is the reason why I'm working on these projects, because I am looking not for an answer, but for a way that allows me to relate, you know, with <laughs> uh, the developments that uh, I disagree with or I don't understand or I grapple with. Yeah, so I'm, you know, always feeling very rewarded for my efforts if these works are being picked up by other people and groups of people and if they do prove the fuel conversations. So my film Faceless, which I don't like to call a CCTV film because it was really about the data protection legislation and our fantasy of what security architectures can look like and also about living in a predictive time zone, a science fiction film. <laughs> so it was discussed by so many journals and newspapers in the political section, not in the art section, and even in countries, in, you know, in places where the film wasn't even showing at the time. So this for me was, for example, an idea of what I would call a successful artwork. You know, it's not about awards and this and that, or being at A-list festivals. That I felt was really, <laughs> felt really successful. And um, it was, yeah, just wonderful to be able to see how this artwork could take on its own life, go out there, discuss, provoke, and then introduce you to new people who you would eventually maybe even become friends with. <laughs> and well, in the case of algorithm, and many other um, artworks, I also like to invite collaboration with uh, maybe overlooked groups, you know, maybe children, for example. We spoke earlier about how children are not part of any urban planning processes, even so they have a wonderfully playful way of um, exploring, reappropriating, <laughs> reinterpreting spaces. Um, so, yeah, I, I like to invite them into the production process, not just run a workshop after the project is finished and tell them about it. No, but um, ask them to participate uh, while I'm still working on it and include it in the production. So in the case of Algorithm, there are younger rappers involved who we introduced to this issue of micro-targeting and political campaigns. And that was also at the time when uh, Senegal was preparing for their upcoming presidential elections. Yeah, so they were 
extremely interested and they then developed their roles themselves. So the brief was to think about your position as an internet user in a political campaign and you realize you're being targeted in that way. Also in Faceless, actually, the mass dance sequences <laughs> that could only happen thanks to the dozens and dozens of youngsters who were interested in exploring their local CCTV installations in that manner. I hope you enjoyed listening to that roundtable on the Predictive Cities exhibition, which, as a reminder, has a specially extended run until the end of 2021 so that you, Mediapolis listeners and readers, can experience it for yourselves. Stay tuned for our next episode, and in the meantime, do take a look at the Mediapolis Journal website by visiting mediapolisjournal, all one word, dot com. That's mediapolisjournal.com, where you can find thought-provoking content such as Tanya Lacote's interview with Marco Diaz about his book The Machinic City, which argues that performance art can help us to better reflect on and live in cities mediated by ubiquitous digital technologies. Or an essay by Jacqueline Pinkowitz on Joe Talbot's 2019 film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, an elegy to the displacement of minority communities. Or a six-part dossier edited by Christoph Lindner on the relationships between lockdowns and gentrification, including his own contribution around how, in London, gentrification has accelerated under the cover of the COVID-19 pandemic and its peculiar aesthetics of vacancy. I'm Scott Rogers, and you have been listening to Mediapolis Now. Now.